Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. It's a shorter chapter than the chapter we had in the first service, but it's full of wonderful things. I don't like to compare chapters because that's a personal preference, but 55 is certainly a very good chapter. We have some wonderful things in the first five verses. The next four are a fantastic promise that we should never forget, verses 6 through 9. And we should trust that God's promises will always come to pass, as 10 and 11 tell us. And the blessing of God upon his church in verses 12 and 13 is a perpetual sign of his grace in the universe. The children of God saved humans exalted over angels and his church of them and his general assembly of them is a is the evidence of God's great character of grace and the whole universe is going to see it soon okay 13 verses in Isaiah chapter 55 the chapter can be summed up with this sentence the gospel And let me clarify something real quick. What does the word gospel mean? Gospel means good news. Glad tidings. So whenever we say the word gospel, or we say the the phrase, the gospel of Jesus, we mean the good news about Jesus. The glad tidings about Jesus and salvation. The good news about his kingdom. Here's the sentence. The gospel offers a free feast of joy under David's son with free pardon and certain promises. The gospel, the good news that the New Testament tells us all about that John, Jesus, and the apostles preached, the gospel offers a free feast of joy under David's son with free pardon and certain promises. So let's go look at it in these 13 verses. The first lesson is in verses 1 and 2. So I read Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2 to you. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Wherefore did ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. We in this church do not believe in self-love or self-esteem as being things that we need to pursue because we're born with a sufficient amount of both of them. And the truth of the matter is we need to learn how to love and esteem others better than ourselves. However, we do believe in self-delight because it tells us to delight ourselves in fatness. And it's a choice that everyone makes that is listening to my voice right now. If you're listening to it now or you're listening to it later, you that are listening, whether now or later, I hope that you will realize that you cost yourself, you cost yourself when you do not recognize the feast of fat things that God has presented as a free buffet 
for us to joyfully partake of in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that is what the first lesson is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is compared to a free feast of fat things. Ho! We would say, hey. They said, ho. Ho, everyone that thirsteth. And so the call is to those that are thirsty. And this is not literal thirst, that you don't have a drink of H2O. This is spiritual thirst of having an unfulfilled, unhappy, lonely, miserable, frustrating life. That it can be solved and satisfied with spiritual things in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ho, let me have your attention. Ho gets your attention. It's not common like behold. Ho is only in the Bible three times. And one of them is right here. Behold's in the Bible hundreds and hundreds of times. But the Lord wants our attention. That when you are unhappy, miserable, discontented, lonely, frustrated, unfulfilled in your life, it's your fault. Because he has provided everything possible for you. Isaiah 54 should have got us warmed up with the teaser menu or with the appetizers before we come to this chapter. In this chapter, hopefully, we'll see things a little clearer about the Lord Jesus Christ and the promises that are in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news promises that we cannot find anywhere else. So in verse 1, anyone that's thirsty, and it doesn't matter if you have money or not, there is a free feast and it's better than water. There is wine and milk. We already learned in Isaiah 7, if you remember, Isaiah 7, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be fed as a child, the nutritious menu of, what was that? Butter and milk, butter and honey. Butter and honey. Here it's milk and honey. Where you have milk, you've got butter. And where you've got butter, you've got honey. Because the two do need each other to some degree. Milk and honey, a feast that we can have. This is the gospel's called milk and honey. It's called free in verse 1. And it's just a wonderful statement. You don't need to bring money. There's no price on it. It's free. It's a buffet. It's wonderful. So if you're thirsty, if you're cast down, if you're unhappy, if you are unfulfilled in your life and wondering what life is all about, if you're disappointed in how your life has turned out, it is your fault for not turning adequately to the feast the Lord has set before you. So he says in verse 2, Wherefore, it's a question, why? Why in the world do you spend so much money for things that can't satisfy? Some of you will make loan payments for years for a car that can't satisfy. Some of you will save up for years to buy something that can't satisfy. A new cell phone doesn't satisfy. A new house doesn't satisfy. As soon as you sign the mortgage paperwork and you walk through the house again, even if you went and looked at it three times before the mortgage, as soon as you sign the mortgage, you will realize the house has many serious problems. And that is life. And so the Lord wants to know, why do you spend so much money for these things that don't work? They don't really give you lasting happiness. They don't fill you with joy. Why do you put so much effort into them? You work yourself to the bone wanting to make more money and get a promotion to buy junk that doesn't satisfy. And so that is what verse 2 is telling us. It's very simple. It's very logical. 
Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread? And we're not talking about literal bread. We're talking about the bread of sustenance that's good for the heart of man. Bread is good for the heart of man in the gospel. The gospel promises about Jesus Christ feed the soul. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the best words of God are in the New Testament because they tell us about Jesus Christ. And this is about the New Testament. Isaiah 53 was Jesus dying. Isaiah 54 was the church of Jesus Christ and the inclusion of Gentiles. This is about Jesus Christ because he's the leader and commander of verse 4 and the sure mercies of David in verse 5 or in verse 3 are about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. This is the gospel. There is nothing in your life that can satisfy like the gospel if you are a born-again child of God. If you continue to work hard to make money, to buy a bigger house, to buy a nicer car, to take a more luxurious vacation, you will never be satisfied. It will not satisfy you like the gospel of Jesus can. And so that is what Isaiah 55 tells us in its first two verses. Now, what do we need to do to partake of the feast of the gospel? We need to do something. It is a buffet, but a buffet doesn't help you unless you get there and look at the menu or survey the table that has all the dishes on it. And the way we do that with the gospel is found in the middle of verse 2. Hearken diligently. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. You have to train yourself to be a better listener to the preaching of God's word. You need to train yourself to be a better reader of God's word. So that when you open up the scriptures, you focus and you pray for focus and you pray for the Lord to open your eyes that you may behold wondrous things out of his law. Then you will be satisfied. If you casually read the Bible from time to time, when it crosses your mind, you will not benefit. If you casually listen to the preaching of God's word and have not prepared and have not prayed and are not participating with all of your ability, you will miss the feast. That is, it's here. This isn't my idea on twisting Isaiah 55 for a more attentive audience. This is God telling you you should be attentive or you'll miss what he's prepared for you. He's prepared the feast. He brought the wine and the milk and he wants you to partake of it. And he wants you to partake of it until your soul is ready to explode with happiness. Because it says, let your soul delight itself in fatness. I wrote you what some would call, because they've never really experienced the joy of Christ in their lives, what some would call foolishness in yesterday's preparatory email. I wrote, I can hardly type. I can hardly see. Because for two weeks in a row, your pastor was bawling like a baby because Hezekiah's prayer and their worship and their singing went up into God's holy dwelling place even into heaven. And I was overwhelmed by it. The New England Patriots, in their best year, 
never overwhelmed my soul. I couldn't even watch them in their Super Bowls, and I didn't, because I couldn't stand to watch all of the incompetence on the field, though they won. But my Lord Jesus Christ has no incompetence. And when worship of sinners who are doing numerous things the wrong way comes up into his holy dwelling place, I was overwhelmed by it. I am an excitable person. I'm a dramatic person. I'm an emotional person. And that's all irrelevant except I want to share with you that I believe these two verses. I have found them to be true in my 62 years. And so when it says, let your soul delight itself in fatness, and the only way that can happen is to hearken diligently unto God. God speaks through his word, and you need to listen carefully. Jesus told the parable of the sower about sowing the word of God and how it was received in different ways. And at the end, he told his apostles, take heed, therefore, how ye hear. Because every one of us hears differently. Sometimes we, because we're lazy and carnal and earthly-minded belly worshipers, do not prepare. So we're like wayside hearers. Then we're in love with the SBA purse of Caesar, and so we're all excited about a loan that's going to be forgiven, which is nothing but a grant to us in coming days, and so we're choked out by the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. Or we forget God's promises that he will take care of us through persecution, and so when a little persecution arises, we wither away and never bear fruit, and the fruit of the gospel from this angle is excitable joy that thrills the soul. Delight, your soul can delight itself in fatness. When you eat something spectacularly good, it gives your whole body pleasure and it delights your soul and you want to say something, that is the best steak I've ever had because it melts in your mouth and the taste buds are screaming pleasure, and you're just so mellow by the glass that accompanies a steak that you want to rejoice. But this is your soul delighting itself in knowing about Jesus Christ. And there's only one way to get it. You've got to train yourself to listen to preaching better and to prepare, to pray, and to participate eagerly with the Word of God. You have to train yourself to read the Word of God better than you may have in the past. That is a long explanation to get us started in Isaiah 53. But it's verses 1 and 2. The gospel of Jesus is compared to a free fat feast, but if you want to partake of it, you've got to learn how to embrace every word, every word of God. You say, what's so special about 2 Chronicles 30 and that 27th verse? What moved you? And it came up into his holy dwelling place, even into heaven? I visualize it. I embrace it. God was excited. God was pleased. God accepted them doing it differently. I know that he burned Nadab and Abihu. I know that he killed Uzzah for touching the ark when it was on David's ox cart. I know those things. So when I see that the good Lord pardoned everyone, that's good enough for the Lord. What a merciful God! And I'm reduced to tears. 
You'd say, well, you're just a crybaby. Call me anything you want. I want to be just like David, who made his bed to swim. I want to be just like Timothy, who Paul said his tears rejoiced his heart. Let's come to the next lesson, verses 3 through 5. Gospel promises include David for the Jews and for the Gentiles. 3 through 5. Now, this is, this is the feast. Verses 1 and 2 are telling you how to enjoy the feast. Now is the feast. Here we go. Verse 3. Incline your ear. Oh, the same warning. We need to teach ourselves how to hear. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. This is the elect remnant Jewish church glorified by the presence of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and the apostles, and the Gentiles would run to it. In John chapter 12, don't we find some Greeks that came and looked up Jesus, and Philip got in the way, and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. Because God glorified his church, like 54, chapter 54 described, with the presence of his son. But let's go back to verse 3. Incline your ear and come unto me here. There again, we have the instruction, if you don't teach yourself how to listen to preaching and how to read the Bible by slowing down and meditating on each word and asking God to lead you in it and confessing your sins so the Spirit can open up His inspired book to you, you'll miss. You won't really live. Most Christians don't really live. That is why Paul would say, what would Paul say in Ephesians chapter 5? Awake, thou that sleepest, and, and arise from the dead. Because most Christians are dead. They don't know how to live. And it tells me in verse 3, and your soul shall live. See, it's your soul from verse 2 that's delighting itself in fatness that is now alive. I used words like unfulfilled, discontent, lonely, frustrated in life that's a person not alive that's a miserable way to live if you come to my office i can give you something to put you out of your misery some have six chambers and some have it in the handle and are of an automatic nature and that's as far as i'll go on that but if that's what you think life is you should end your life yes out of this pulpit if that is what you think life is, you might as well end it because it's a miserable way to live. Amen. It can be worse than death at times. But if you will embrace the gospel and learn how to hear, look at that third verse. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And your soul can delight itself in fatness. Brethren, I've tried, I've tried everything. Solomon tried everything a whole lot better than I did. And he said, everything that is tried without the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ is vanity of vanities and vexation of spirit. And he tried it all. So forget my little experience. It's irrelevant compared to his. 
But I know this is true. I know it is true, first of all, because it's in the Bible. I know it is second true because it's happened to me. And nothing works like the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. I will promise you a king to live forever who loves you and who will divide his inheritance with you as a joint heir of him and who will admit that you are his brethren before the whole world and he's not ashamed to do so and he's going to come back and renovate the entire universe. I'll make a covenant with you. How does God make a covenant with us? When we hear the gospel and we believe that it's for us. And we go down in the waters of baptism and say we are his and he is mine. He makes a covenant with us. He's already made the covenant with David. He'd already made the covenant with Israel. He'd already made the covenant with Jacob. Jacob on his deathbed said, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh come, and to him will the gathering of the people be. That covenant's been established since before the world began. God in Christ, promising eternal life to his elect. But when we hear the gospel and we believe it, it's as if God is making a covenant with us. Here's what it sounds like in the New Testament. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, God through us is asking you to be reconciled to God. God's made a covenant for his elect in Christ. When we hear it in the gospel, we claim it. I mean, it's mine, brethren. And I speak to every one of you in your homes it's mine. And you should be saying, no, it's mine. But the glory of Christ is, it's both of ours. Amen. And it's the beauty of this passage. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. Do you know where the sure mercies of David are quoted in the Bible? Paul used that in Acts chapter 13. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Because if God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, then the mercies of David are not true. They would have ended. But they didn't end because God raised Jesus from the dead. And the Apostle Paul said Isaiah 55.3 was fulfilled in his resurrection. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. What mercies are they? The sure mercies of David. And I will make known thy faithfulness to all generations. What faithfulness? The covenant right here. That I have given you a king. I've given you a husband. I've given you a leader and a commander. The next verse. In Jesus of Nazareth. You need not fear anything. In time or eternity. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea rather. That is risen. And is at the right hand of God. In Romans chapter 8. Verse 4. Behold I have given him for a witness to the people. Jesus Christ is the faithful and true witness and reveals to us he is the express image of God and he has declared to us the will of God. Jesus said when he was preaching on earth, I preach not a doctrine that I came up of, of myself, but what my Father gave me, I give to you. He is a witness of the truth. The ultimate truth of the universe is the gospel. The gospel, the good news, is the ultimate truth about everything in the universe that is of importance to know. And it's the glory of God and his perfections satisfied for the sake of rebel sinners through Jesus Christ, his son, who now reigns on high for them and will deliver them, even their dead bodies from the grave, and will put them back together in his presence to live forever with the Lord. Amen. And so shall we be in a new universe. Yes, yes, it's a secret society. 
You don't hear this in the afternoon press conference coming out of Washington. But you hear it here, and I hope you've prepared yourself to hear it, and that you're training yourself to think about these things. This is my leader and my commander. I will give honor to our president as much or more than anyone in this assembly and presidents before him. But this is my leader and commander. He's at another level altogether. Amen. Our Lord Jesus is not called a leader anywhere else. Leader is only used a few times in the Bible, and commander is not used anywhere at all in the Bible for anyone. But it's used right here. And I love those jewels that the Holy Spirit chooses to give us. Jesus Christ is my commander-in-chief, the ultimate commander. Everything is under his command. The blacksmith is under his command. The waster is under his command. COVID-19, are you serious? That's nothing for him. It's under his command. Every tsunami, hurricane is under his command. Everything is under his command. Our country's under his command. Those promoting hydroxychloroquine and those opposing hydroxychloroquine are all under his command. He's in command. He's in charge. I love him for that. And you should love him for that. And it's part of the feast of fat things. To be told that there is a king better than any king that's ever lived, that should excite men because a mere king will excite men. You get excited about a captain on a football team? I'm speaking to me. To spare you the judgment, I'll speak to me. I get excited about the efficiency of the New England Patriots with Tom Brady as their former quarterback. He's now a Tampa Bay Buccaneer, and you don't care, and you don't need to care. But to get excited about the efficiency and the commitment and the effort that his coach, Bill Belichick, and he put into winning games is moving. But it's nothing compared to this leader and commander. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Feast of Fat Things. So I'm going down the table looking at this feast, and there's some milk, and there's some honey, and there's some bread, and there's some water, the four things that have been mentioned so far. And I look at one of them, oh, I want some of that. And it's Jesus Christ as a leader and a commander. And so I take some. How do I take it? Hearken diligently unto me, and delight your soul. Delight your soul in fatness. That's how you do it. I say, where am I going to read in the Bible today? I want to read about Jesus as my leader and commander. So you go read something about Jesus as your leader and commander. And it lights up your soul if you prepare, pray, participate, and get into every word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word of God is pure. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. Verse 5, Behold, speaking to the Jewish church, thou, art, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not. These are the Gentiles coming in. Remember, in chapter 54, it was verse 3. In chapter 55, it's verse 5. This is the Gentiles coming in. We're going to run to the Jewish church. And did they ever. When they heard about the gospel, they wanted to hear Paul. Do you remember in Antioch of Pisidia, across the Mediterranean from Israel, when Paul was there and he preached and they went home, it says the next Sabbath day, the whole city came to hear him because they wanted to hear the gospel from the Apostle Paul. What pain some of us have taken to hear the gospel 
Now, brethren, some of you have been converted for a long while, but I want you to think way back to how far you would drive. And we have some right now that drive from North Carolina, 80 minutes one way, to hear the gospel in person when we are holding assemblies. But remember about how you would run to hear the gospel. Distance meant nothing. Time meant nothing. Cost meant nothing. Losing friends meant nothing. I've got to get to that rude Jew named Saul, but now named Paul, who's preaching in town. Paul called himself rude. Please don't send me any emails about calling Paul rude. Paul said he was rude in speech. And so this decrepit looking guy, he said in and his, his presence was just decrepit and pitiful looking. And this has cost me in the past, but I don't care because if things like that discourage you from eating the feast of fat things, then so be discouraged. God raised up Paul to not have a good personal presence. He didn't have a good pulpit presence. He didn't have a good appearance. And he was rude in speech. And yet Gentiles wanted to hear him. Right. And Gentiles wanted to hear Peter, who was worse. Because at least Paul went to school and didn't spend his life fishing in the backwoods of Galilee. But did Cornelius want to hear Peter? Cornelius fell down at his feet and Peter had to get him up. This is what verse 5 is telling us. This is the feast of fat things. This is Isaiah. Buried in the lives of four kings, Hezekiah being the last, God inspires him in his office. He looks forward and he sees the little bump of Babylon. He sees the little bump, the little hill come out of the horizon of Cyrus. And he looks past it. Look at that mountain. And that mountain is Christ. And that mountain is the New Testament church. And that mountain is the feast of fat things. Are you gonna, is your soul going to live? Or are you going to walk away from this sermon? Right now are you thinking, I can't wait till he finishes so that I can play video games. The Lord hears every syllable. The Lord hears every syllable. What are you waiting for today? Something next? Something next? Adam Green told you earlier today, what's next? Do you remember? Death is next. And you haven't lived while you were alive. Let's not have the church of the living dead. Let's have a church that is dead to this world and alive to Christ like this describes right here. And for the Holy One of Israel, God was going to glorify that Jewish church and the Gentiles were going to run to it because God sent His Son to that Jewish church into that second temple. Let's go to the next lesson, verses 6 through 9. Oh, verses 6 through 9. Are any sinners listening to me today? Amen. Has anyone ever sinned that's listening to me today? Has anyone ever backslid and lost their first love of Christ? Then I have four verses for you, and it's the next dish on the buffet line of the Feast of Fat Things, and it's how much God forgives and pardons those who sin. Here's how much. Six through nine. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Amen and amen. We've all sinned. We've all backslid. We've all turned away. We've all played the fool at times. But one of the menu items and one of the dishes that is on the buffet of the Feast of Fat Things is his mercy and his abundant pardon for sinners. So all you got to do is look at verse 6. Let's practice right now. Hearken diligently, hear, and come unto me. So let's do it. Look at verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. You're going to have to put forth some effort to get the Lord's mercy in your life, and he's not always going to be there for you. He may withdraw himself. Esau begged with tears to have his birthright restored, and it was too late, and he was given to us as an example of how God can withhold his mercy for practical fellowship with him because you have played with it and toyed with it too long with the soap bubbles of this life, like bodily exercise, like making more money, like having a bigger house, more friends, your kids, your grandchildren, and all the other distractions that take you away from making the Lord Jesus preeminent in your lives. So we've got to seek him and we've got to call upon him while he is near. He may not always be near. He won't always be near. Then we need to repent. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way. Things that you have been doing that are wrong, stop doing them. Thoughts that you have had that are proud, that are personal, that are neglectful of God's kingdom, get rid of those thoughts. It says the wicked should forsake his way, the unrighteous man should forsake his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. Let's run back to the Lord and tell him we want to do it his way. We don't want to do it our way. We don't want to do it our way. We want to do it his way. And we don't want to think our thoughts. We want to think his thoughts. And remember, my job as your pastor is to make war against your ways and your thoughts. I'm to bring every one of your thoughts into captivity, according to 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 6. And that's what I'm doing right now. Get rid of your thoughts. Get rid of your ways. Some of you don't like the way that we're handling our submission to civil government. No one's written and told me because they're afraid to. But I don't care what you think. I'm giving you God's thoughts on the matter. So get your thoughts right. Let's all line up on the same page and make sure our ways are his ways, our thoughts are his thoughts. Then we can get what's left in this verse. And what's left in this verse is mercy. 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 That means God has me under his thumb and his righteous law because I've sinned. Sin is the transgression of the law. Because I'm a transgressor, I deserve to be punished. But I turn from my foolishness. I invoke the R factor of repentance. I run to him. I confess my sins and tell him I want to do it his way. And he mercifully lifts his thumb off me and says, son, welcome back. Let's have a feast. Let's kill the fatted calf. And my God, because he will abundantly pardon. A pardon is a wonderful thing. The doctrine of the pardon is not taught in the New Testament. What's taught in the New Testament is forgiveness. I don't want to make light of the word forgiveness, but I certainly do love pardon. Do you know that when you are pardoned from a crime, that crime is not on your record? If you serve your time for a crime, you will have that crime on your record for the rest of your life. 
But when you are pardoned, it's gone. And we could talk about pardons for a long time. And there is a sermon that will help you think about pardons because it's called Abundantly Pardoned or Abundant Pardon. And it's on the website if you want to listen to just a whole lot about pardons. And I don't want to take forever. I want this to be an abbreviated sermon in the sense that I want you to see the picture of the buffet line of the Feast of Fat Things. What was first? What's the entree? What's the main dish? The Lord Jesus Christ, my leader and commander, and the covenant that God has made with me, that my Savior Jesus will never forsake me, never forget me, never rebuke me, but will take me into his presence, and he's coming for me soon. What's the next dish? The next dish is the forgiveness of sins and the mercy of God and his pardon. He's pardoned me. You know some of my sins. I've been pardoned. They're not even part of my record. I don't put them on my resume. And I thank the Lord for that. And for some reason, men who didn't understand their Bibles put a paragraph mark in my King James Version at verse 8. Does anyone else here in this vast assembly have a paragraph mark at verse? That is so embarrassing. Because that 4 is a coordinating conjunction, and it is tying verses 8 and 9 to verses 6 and 7. That you can seek the Lord, and you can call upon Him, because even though you've been wicked, and even though you've been unrighteous, and even though you have followed your way and your thoughts, if you will go to him, he'll have mercy and he will abundantly pardon. And you'll say, that's impossible. How could God do it? Well, because his ways are higher than your ways. Amen. Verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. I don't forgive the way you do. You forgive begrudgingly. And if you tell somebody you forgive them, you still hold on often, usually, this is human nature, you hold on to a little bit of bitterness just waiting for them to fail the next time so you can bring up the past one that you told them you forgot, but God abundantly pardons. It's off my record. It's off my record. I'm a perfect son. I'm a perfect husband. I'm a perfect pastor. Praise God, because Jesus Christ has pardoned me. This is the feast of fat things. Now, if you think making 5% more at work so that you move from poverty to less poverty is something that you're aiming for in your life, then go ahead and aim for it, but you're not living. Real life is loving these things and knowing this is truth that will see you past death. You know, Jonathan Edwards and what we heard from Psalm 90 and verse 12 today only looked to death. It was referring to eternity to follow, but if you want something to take you right on through it, and you heard it in that explanation of Psalm 90 and verse 12, it is to love the Lord Jesus Christ and all the eternal things related to him. And so first is Jesus, the leader and commander of verses 3 through 5. Then is the forgiveness and pardon of sins, verses 6 through 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth in verse 9, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's so much that could be said on pardon. I have pages and count, nearly countless illustrations of pardons in the Bible and, and words that the Holy Spirit uses in lieu of the word pardon. Abundant pardon means God, when he forgives and in mercy blots out your sins, does it faster, 
fuller, easier, more painless, and longer lasting than you can even dream about. You can't even imagine it because his thoughts are above your thoughts. So you can't think it. Verse 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. He says it about every way he can in verses 8 and 9. I forgive differently than you forgive. I forgive differently than everyone who's ever told you they've forgiven you. I forgive differently. I forgive faster, fuller, easier, more painlessly, and longer lasting than you can even imagine. Well, for sinners, that is, that is wonderful news. That is good news and glad tidings for sinners. So I like it. I like it a lot. Next lesson. If you want more on pardon, it's called abundant pardon. The next lesson is verses 10 and 11. God's promises will certainly come to pass. Gospel promises will fulfill God's purposes. What God has purposed to do, he is going to do. And what is God going to do? He's told us. He's told us in 17 verses of chapter 54, and he's told us in the first nine verses of 55, because that's the context. So he says this, 10 and 11, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. That's a natural event that happens, the water cycle that supplies us with food. So, see the as up there starting verse 10? For as, so, verse 11, shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So whatever we have covered today that you liked, God will never rebuke me. He is saying, as certain as water comes down to get your next PB&J sandwich out of the earth, he is going to keep his promises to not rebuke you. If your favorite dish so far is Jesus, your leader and commander, he has set his son up to be the demonstration and the the express image of his person and the demonstration of his saving grace in this universe. And he will keep his promise. It will not return to him void. This is not about gospel preaching that somebody's always going to come forward when the invitation is given. This is about God's promises in his word of right here in the context, they will come to pass. None of them will be empty and not fulfilled but they will certainly come to pass. It shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. In verse 11, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. What I have said, behold, my servant shall deal prudently and shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong And my leader and commander will come. And the sure mercies of David are a covenant with you. And if you will turn from your wicked ways and foolish thoughts and come to me, I will forgive you and abundantly pardon. None of those are ever going to fall on the ground. 
you know, and this is just a little side trail for 30 seconds for those that like to study their Bibles. I hope you understand that in verse 10, verse 10 violates the water cycle. For it says, as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither. Does the rain and the snow return thither? Yes, of course they do. So you got to learn how to read your Bible carefully. So what's it saying? For as the rain cometh down the snow from heaven without accomplishing some good purpose, while they're on earth, they don't return to heaven. Because while they're here, they do something good. And God's word's going to come back to him too when Jesus Christ owns the whole thing and the whole drama is going to be brought to an astounding conclusion before the whole universe. But it's not going to get there until every promise has been completed. Got to go on. Last lesson. Verses 12 and 13. Gospel prosperity of the elect for God's glory. God is going to make your life beautiful if you will do what we've been talking about. In the first few verses, it's training yourself to listen to preaching better and to read the Bible better. He's got promises in verses 6 through 9 that should move every one of us to forget our foolish ways and to turn totally to Him. Let me say something about that forgiveness and pardon. I've preached this before, but I want to say it again. If you, if you hold any pity for yourself because you sinned, if you want to hold on to guilt and shame because of your sin, it is the devil thrusting darts into your heart and you gladly accepting them. It is not the Holy Spirit. That is not how the Holy Spirit works. When God forgives, men stand up and put their swords back on. When David was under the conviction of God for his sin, he was a broken man and his sword was down. But when God forgave him, he rose up and put that sword back on and worshiped and went right back to work. If you hold on to guilt, if you hold on to shame, if you pity yourself because of your sins, and I thank God for David in the Old Testament and Peter in the New, why did God have to put Peter's Denial of Jesus in all four Gospels. Peter had to deal with that the rest of his life because it was written in all four Gospels. Many of your sins are not known. Some sins are known. Some men's sins go beforehand, going before to judgment. Others will follow after. Peter, why did Paul have to write it in Galatians chapter 2 that he had to rebuke Peter to his face? Couldn't he have shown a little brotherly kindness and left that out so Peter wouldn't have been caught twice, once denying the Lord and then denying the gospel of Jesus Christ when, when Jews came up from Jerusalem, came down from Jerusalem in altitude? Did Peter stand up and put his sword on? Did he write two epistles? On the... Before the day of Pentecost, did he stand up in front of ten other apostles and tell them, this is the way we need to do it, boys? Did he take charge of that meeting? Did they talk him out of the podium? No. Because Jesus had told him, I'm going to pray for thee. He didn't say he was going to pray for the rest. Go read it. Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you. Satan wanted all the apostles, because that's plural. But I have prayed for thee, and when thou art strengthened, comfort thy brethren. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is Jesus forgiving and having mercy on Peter before he even sinned. That is just as good as it gets. 
That's part of the feast of fat things. Okay, where's your point, Pastor? Here's my point. If you're still fussing about your sins or worried about them or feeling guilt and shame and you haven't stood up and put your sword back on, there's two reasons. The big reason is Satan has thrust darts into you and you've said, here, here's a spot that's not wounded yet. Thrust another one because you're letting him do it to you. Right. Two things. Number one, you're calling in question the integrity of God. God said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you hold on to any guilt, you are calling God's integrity in question. That's one. Two, you are calling the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross into question because it must not have been enough to pay for your little sins. Believe. Yeah, that's right. It's the feast of fat things. You're to listen to it diligently and to think through it. I cannot logically oppose it. It's true. It's in God's word. I am pardoned and I am abundantly pardoned. Verses 12 and 13. Brethren, don't hold on to past sins. Be like David and Peter and have your best accomplishments in the latter part of your lives. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Verse 12. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Everything is going to turn out well for those that eat at the feast of fat things. For the wicked that turns from his wicked way and returns to the Lord. For the unrighteous man that forgets his foolish thoughts and returns to the Lord, the Lord will abundantly pardon. It says his promises are as sure as the water cycle, producing enough for bread, peanut butter, and jelly for all of us. He will beautify the rest of your life and right on into eternity, nothing bad is going to happen to you, but all is going to be taken care of because it is for a witness and a testimony of his faithfulness, his goodness, his adoption, his salvation, his justification, his reconciliation, because he wants to show the angelic realm. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. He wants to show the angels the goodness and the wisdom of his salvation of sinners like me and sinners like you. And so it is said at the end of this passage, it shall be to the Lord for a name. The beauty of his church will be to the Lord. That's how he's going to get his name. That's how he's going to magnify himself to the universe and for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Because forever and ever and ever and ever, we shall be living and praising to the glory of God for his salvation of us rebel sinners. Verses 12 and 13 are not difficult. You know that 12 is not literal. Hills don't clap their hands. Hills don't sing. But it's describing a joyful product, a joyful result of God's covenant promises that we will end up in heaven where everything is good, nothing is bad, the curse of thorns and briars ripped out of the way and replaced with fir trees and myrtle trees. And it's all going to be for God's glory because it's all about him. It's all for him. It's all of him. It's all by him and his son, Jesus Christ. This is Isaiah 54 and 55. I'm sorry to disappoint you. 
but you shouldn't be disappointed. Delight in these words. What's your favorite verse of 54? What's your favorite verse of 55? Pick one. I always have trouble picking one because I'll tell you one one minute and I'll tell you another one the next minute because there's beautiful verses here. I love leader and commander. I love abundant pardon. I'm pardoned. I'm pardoned. You know, if we don't forgive each other, it doesn't mean a thing. All that matters is God forgave us and he pardoned us. Verses 12 and 13, just finish it up, that the covenant promises that are in Jesus Christ by the gospel move right on into heaven where everything is joyful and perfect and there's no curse, there's no difficulty, there's no, oh, that was a thorn. No, nothing negative like that. It's just all good, it's all comfortable. And because, why is it that way? Because God is going to get himself a name by making heaven better than anything we have ever imagined and getting us there better than we've ever imagined we could live even on earth. Those martyrs gave us a picture of people that were entirely content, happy, joyful, thankful, and full of praise even while their bodies were burning in a slow fire. And we read it and we heard it over and over because they knew their leader and commander. They knew their sins were forgiven. And as verse 17 of chapter 54 ends, they knew that their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. No matter that they have been called heretics by the largest church on earth, by, the, by men in fancy robes with fancy churches behind them, they'd been called heretics. They knew their righteousness was of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was their leader and commander. And they could say in their last breath in those flames, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And do you know how many spirits have been lost that have said that? Between the moment of death here in this world and being in his presence in heaven? Not one. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I know you're at home, but will you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, Father, Father, the mighty God, the God of the whole earth, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord of hosts, our Father, we thank Thee, O Lord God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Bless the preaching of Thy Word to every soul. Do not let any soul turn off this live stream or leave Isaiah 54 and 55 without being gripped by the fantastic nutrition and the incredible taste of the buffet, the feast of fat things you have prepared for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us everything about thee, sin and the cure of sin, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and the promises of eternal life. We thank thee for him. He is our leader and our commander. He is our commander-in-chief at a level unknown by anyone else. We thank Thee for the abundant pardon that we have by His death on the cross. We thank Thee that if we come to Thee, we can obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. And we thank Thee that You have used us as the objects of Your affection. We are, messel, we are vessels of glory. We are vessels of mercy. We are vessels of pardon so that You can reveal your great character of mercy and forgiveness and pardon to the universe. Amen. We thank thee, O Lord. Bless this preaching to the benefit of thy church 
and to each of thy children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.